0: Well, I want to ask you a question this morning as we get started with the message, and that question uh, is this. Is there anyone in the room who would say that they have too much joy? I don't see any hands, but I just I want to be clear. Um, you have too much joy. In fact, you have so much joy in your life that you're, asked, you're wishing that hardships would come and kind of take some joy away. Any, anybody feel that way? Anybody have enough peace in their life, so much peace that they're like, you know what, I just, there's too much peace. I really wish I could have some anxiety right now because I just have too much peace going on. <laughs> Nobody's feeling that way that I'm, I'm seeing? Okay. Uh, what about hope? Anybody just like, man, I'm just so hopeful all the time. I wish something could crush my hope and, and bring some doubt. I just, I have too much hope all the time. Anybody? Feel that way. No, okay. Um, Well, if you were um, too embarrassed to raise your hand, but that's you, um, I'm giving you permission right now uh, to not listen to me, okay? Um, Because we're going to talk about this this morning, this idea um, that there is hope to be found, there's joy, there's peace uh, to be found And it was promised to us. Jesus himself promised us a life abundantly. He promised um, this incredible joy and hope. And we read about it in scriptures. And and, uh, the picture that we get isn't always the picture of, of life that we are experiencing. And it begs the question, what could we do differently? What could be different about our lives to gain that kind of joy, to gain that kind of hope, to gain that kind of peace? How could we increase those things in our lives? And, and as I was wondering about this question, I, I stumbled across Uh, Something in the book of Psalms. We've been in the book of Psalms for the last few weeks. um, A few messages from uh, Pastor Darren, our senior pastor, on that uh, from that book. And uh, as I was studying this book, something uh, I realized something. Something came to me that I hadn't seen before. That didn't I didn't notice before. Uh, The book of Psalms is not just a, a book of songs. Um, It's not just a book of poems, although uh, that is how it's postured in in the scripture. It's this book that is these songs and poems written by God's people over centuries and and put together for God's people to worship him with, and it is that, but it's more than that. What I realized is that the book of Psalms is actually a a book of prayers, that all of these songs that were written, all of these poems that were written are actually prayers that were written to God, praising God, lamenting. There there are two different kinds of prayers in the book of Psalms. Uh, One is called a lament, and that's a kind of a sorrowful or an angst-filled prayer. It's it's the way that we pray when we're angry, when we're upset, when we're frustrated, when we're sad, when we're overwhelmed by the world. We see that over and over throughout the Psalms. And there's another kind of of Psalm, and that's the Psalms of praise, where we're praising God for things, things that he's done, uh, praising him for his creation, praising him for who he is, all kinds of praises flowing out of that. as we look closely at the book of Psalms, what we find uh, is that the book of Psalms is put together really kind of funny. Um, it's not put together in a way that makes sense to me, uh, or really any kind of a logical order. You would think, you know, with so many different authors, with so many different psalms and types, that they'd be categorized somehow or organized together that would make sense, right? Where we'd see, okay, here's all the here's all the laments, here's all the praises, or here's all the songs uh, of David, here's the next author, the next author, Here's here's all of those together, or here's the psalms that were written about this time, maybe in chronological order so we could see it that way. But they're not written that way they're put together in a very specific way. And as you study the entire book, as you read the whole thing from from cover to cover, from the very first chapter to the very last chapter, what you find is that the book of Psalms is actually taking us on a journey, and it's teaching us something. In fact, the first two chapters uh, will reveal that this book is it's almost an introduction to the book, and it shows us in the first two chapters that this is a teaching on prayer. That's the whole point of the book, is that it's a teaching on prayer. It's the, it's the, the playbook or the textbook of how to pray. And then, as you move towards the end of the book, you find that it, it finishes with these five psalms of praise that are called the hallelujahs. Five times, they, they all start with this word hallelujah, and that's a really interesting word in the Hebrew. It's, it's a command. The command literally means praise Yah, which is short for Yahweh, and so literally these are commands saying praise God, these last five. But what struck me most is, is the way that the book unfolds. In the beginning of the book of Psalms, what you find is that the laments the songs of sorrow, the songs of angst, the songs crying out to God uh, outnumber the songs of praise. And As you move through to the end of the book, that flips. And the songs of praise, the songs of joy, the songs of, of gladness, of thanksgiving, outnumber the psalms of lament and of angst. And I thought, what if, what if this book is trying to teach us something and trying to tell us something? That if we would learn to pray, if we'd learn to really pray, the way that God would have us to pray, if we'd really take this seriously, this, this study of prayer seriously, what if our sorrow could turn to joy? What if our mourning could turn to dancing and laughter, as so many of the psalms say that it will? And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that, that God has called us to a life full of joy, full of praise, and as we walk with Him, we will find that. And maybe nowhere is this more evident than in the life of King David. Now, we looked at King David, uh, a couple of his psalms, we looked at him a couple weeks ago. We know that King David was uh, by no means perfect, that he wasn't super uh, obedient or super holy or super righteous in those ways. And yet, David, it is said about him that he was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And if you read the psalms of David, what you find is that no matter what was happening to David, he was always able to find faith. Always able to find hope, always able to find joy, always able to find peace. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look at just a couple of the Psalms that David wrote for us, uh, that he wrote uh, as prayers to God. Take a look at those and see if we can't learn something from the way David prayed that might give us more hope, more joy, and more peace. And so we're going to start in Psalm 12. Now, this could be a little bit confusing, so I want to clarify We're going to look at these two kind of side by side. So we're going to read a couple verses from Psalm 12, then we're going to jump over and read a couple verses from Psalm 13, we're going to come back to 12, then we're going to go more into 12, and then back to 13, okay? But I'll try and make it clear kind of what we're reading so we don't get lost, and we'll put that text up on the screen. But let's just jump in here and see what we can learn about prayer from David and these Psalms. Psalm 12, starting in verse 1, we'll read the first four verses. Here's what he says, "'Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone.'" The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who will master over us? Now what do you see here? David is sorrowful. He's he's kind of in, in a, a state of, of sadness at, at the way the world is. And he's saying, these evil people have come in. Nobody fears God anymore. Nobody does what's right. Everybody's doing uh, their own thing. They're doing what they think is right. And they think that they're going to be able to talk their way out of it. Uh, and they're, they're doing that. They're, they are talking their way out of it with these flattering lips. That, and the world is just so broken. And you hear David's sadness and his sorrow in it. And can't you relate to that? The world is broken. Broken. Every time, in fact, I've stopped watching the news for the most part, because every time I seem to watch the news, there's another tragic story, another tragedy, another sorrowful thing in our world, the way that things are broken, the way that things are going. And here's David experiencing very similar things and crying out to God, where are you, God? What's going on? This is so terrible. It's so awful. Now, it's interesting uh, that in Psalm 12, David is very sorrowful and, and mournful about this. Uh, but if we jump over to Psalm 13, uh, David's attitude is just a little bit different here. So I, I want to read that one now, Psalm 13. Again, the first four verses, David says here, "'How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever?' How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, I don't know how you read that. But when I read 13, David doesn't sound sad anymore. He's a little bit angry in this. I mean, just look at these words. Consider me and answer me, O Lord, my God. How long, O oh Lord? Repeated over and over. He uses this symbolic language uh, describing his plight, describing how God has abandoned him, how, how God has turned his face away from him, which, which none of that is really true. This is all symbolic language. This is how David feels. He's saying, God, why haven't you come to my rescue yet? Why haven't you come to my aid? Why haven't you done these things? How long do I have to wait for you? Has anybody ever been in a situation where you felt that way? Many of us have. God, I thought you took care of this. I thought this was going to be over. I thought by now we'd be in a better place. I thought by now I'd be healed. I thought by now this thing would be resolved. I thought by now these problems would be gone. I thought you had taken care of them. Where are you, God? We can relate to David's experience, to David's emotions here. And David does something in both of these Psalms. It's very similar. In the one, he's sorrowful about the state of the world, and the other, he's angry that God hasn't come to his aid yet. But in both situations, David does this thing he takes it to God. He goes to God and says, God, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. God, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on with me. God, I'm being honest. I'm being vulnerable. I'm being real with you right now. God, I'm showing you my heart. I'm showing you who I am. And see, here's the problem for for so many of us who grew up in church. We somehow learned that there's a proper way to approach God, that there's a, a protocol, that there's a, a way that we have to come to God, that somehow we have to get things figured out or, or taken care of or straightened out before we can go to God with our stuff. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have, a, um, I have actually three sons, but I have one son whose name is Wesley. And uh, Wesley's almost seven years old, and, and Wesley understands this concept because whatever Wesley is feeling he will bring to me every time. If he's happy, he will stop what he's doing and come tell me that he's happy. If he is sad, he will find me and tell me that he's sad. If he's mad about something, he will come find me and you can bet he's gonna whine and complain about it. I mean, you, I mean, he just he wears his heart on his sleeve all the time as a seven-year-old boy. In fact, there have been times when he's been across the street playing and just it has struck his heart to come tell me that he loves me. Dad, I love you so, Dad, I just want to tell you I love you. He's just, he's, in, he's joyful, he's, he's happy, and so he'll come and tell me. Whatever he's feeling, whatever emotion he's feeling, he comes and tells me. Now, as a parent, it's my job to help him know how to navigate those emo- emotions, right? That's my job. But I think some of us have learned this lesson a little bit too well, And that we've taken it to the next level and said managing emotions means we don't show emotions. Managing emotions means we're not real about it. Managing emotions means that we don't let people see what's really going on with us. And we certainly don't let God see what's going on with us. And there's some truth in the fact that God is holy and to be feared. And that he's righteous and that he's God. I mean, he is the the commander-in-chief over legions of angel armies. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is the king. He is God. He Absolutely, he deserves our respect. He deserves our honor. He deserves all of those things. But at the same time as all of that, he calls himself our father. I I once heard this story from a church in Louisville, Kentucky, a very large church there, and the senior pastor uh, named Bob Russell had a conversation with his teaching pastor, because his teaching pastor uh, dressed more like I'm dressed today, and the senior pastor uh, would wear a suit and tie. And he came in and said, don't you think that when you come to church, when you come to meet with God, that you should put on your absolute best? I mean, you are meeting with the King of Kings. It would be like going to visit the President of the United States. Wouldn't you want to dress for that meeting? And the young teaching pastor's response was, yeah, unless he's my dad. But so many of us come to God not as the father, but as this far-off king who we're afraid to approach. As if there's some protocol or commanding officer that we have to to get it right or he's going to send us out or he's going to punish us, right? Uh, And I'm here to tell you, God is not going to write you up because you didn't come to him in the proper way. It's not going to happen, Okay. He's not kicking you out of the kingdom because you didn't do the proper facing movements when you came to God, okay? Uh, like, that's not how it works. He is our father. He calls himself that. And if we would come to him as a father, honestly, vulnerably, I think we would have a different encounter. I think we would experience something that we, many of us have not yet experienced. That's how David comes to God. He's honest. He says, God, this is what's going on. I'm bringing it to you. Whatever it is, whatever sorrow, whatever anger, whatever angst, whatever disappointment, he's bringing it to God. But he doesn't stop there. After he brings it to God, David goes on, and in Psalm 12, verse 5, he says this. Now, he doesn't do it in 13, but he does it in 12. I want to point it out here. This is what he says. He quotes God. Right here, he switches from David talking to God speaking in this prayer. And he says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And so in the midst of David's sorrow, remember 12, he's, he's upset with the state of the world. He's sad about what's going on. He's disappointed with how people are getting away with evil. And then he turns and says, because this is what God says. And so in the middle of his anguish, in the middle of taking it to God, he then does this thing. He declares the truth. And there's something so powerful about declaring truth. And we simply do not get it right often Enough. But David gets it right here, and he says, and I don't know, um, I, I tried to do some research and some study on this, I, I don't know if David is, uh, I couldn't find a place in Scripture where David is quoting. I think maybe God heard from David in this moment, or, or he's saying, this is what God would say because I know his character, I know he's been faithful, I know what he's done in the past. I, I'm not sure exactly, but the, David is, is certainly proclaiming the truth about what God's going to do, and about what, who God is, and about what God has said in this moment. And, and here's what I want to tell you. It's very difficult to declare the truth if you don't know what it is uh, and wouldn't, you, wouldn't you agree if you don't know the truth how can you declare the truth but david was a man after god's own heart david knew the stories david knew who god was david had this in deep intimate relationship with god and this is how this can play out. I, I'll tell you, uh, it's happened to me in, in, in several different ways. Uh, sometimes I'll be praying and I'll, and I'll ask God. I'll, I'll declare uh, what's going on with me. I'll give it to God. I'll, I'll bring that, that sorrow, that angst, that anger. Whatever it is, I bring it to God and then I sit and wait for him to respond. Because this isn't a, a monologue, right? When we go into prayer, we shouldn't be monologuing to God. This is a conversation back and forth. What does God have to say to me? What do I have to say to God? What, what are we talking about? We're going back and forth. It's a conversation. And so I'll sit and wait and wait. And sometimes, sometimes God will say something. Now, when I say that I'm hearing the voice of God, it it can look a few different ways. Sometimes I'll hear words and it's an idea that I know wasn't mine because my heart's not that good. And I hear these ideas and I go, God, is that, is that what you want? Is that, is that what you're saying to me? And sometimes, it's not words at all, it's just an idea. Sometimes it's just a feeling that I know wasn't mine. Sometimes God will give me a heart for something I didn't have a heart for before, kind of almost instantaneously, where my heart is changed in that moment because he's speaking directly to my heart. But I let him speak. But most often, more often than any of the ways that God has spoken to me that I've encountered God, more often than any of those is this. He will most often remind me of things he's already said. Things that he said in scripture. Stories uh, about his goodness, about his faithfulness, about his, uh, his abil- uh, ability to, to be victorious, about the victories in the Old Testament, about the victory over sin and the enemy in the New Testament. More often than anything, the way that God will speak is by reminding me, reminding us of what he's already said. This, in and of itself, should be a reason To open the scriptures, to read what God has done, to read what he said, to know the stories, to know his character, to know what he said, to know his heart, so that in those moments when you need a word from the Lord, he can remind you so that you remember what he's done. When you're fighting the battle of your life, you can remember how God came to the rescue of his people, how he miraculously gave them victory when they shouldn't have had victory. And he'll remind you of those stories, he'll remind you of those words, and he'll put it in your heart, and then you can declare that truth. Now, now, I also want you to understand it's not enough just to know the truth. See, something happens when we declare it. Uh, There's scientific evidence that shows that our brains actually process the information differently when we say it out loud. And as we say it out loud, something happens in our minds and in our hearts that we believe it in a different way. It's more true when I say it with my own voice out loud than if I hear somebody else say it or if I read it or if I say it internally in my head without actually saying it out loud. So when I say it out loud, something happens, something different happens. And so we know the truth and we declare the truth just like David did. And after David declares the truth, he goes on in his prayer, and he says this in Psalm 12, up in verse 6. He says, The words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. You can see David's heart is shifting. He's going, I trust you, God. I know you got this. I trust you. I I, I believe in you. I know you're going to come through for me. I know that you're going to do this, God. Uh, And and it's really interesting that when he goes to the next verse in 12, 8, David says this, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Now just hold that thought for a second. I want want you to see 13. How does David respond in the end of 13? And we're going to go back to this one verse. Right? So here's what he says in 13. Towards the end, he says, I have trusted your steadfast love. Remember, this is where God's saying, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to have to wait? How long are you going to hide your face from me? And he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so in both of these psalms, what we see David do is he brings what's real. He brings his vulnerable emotions. He brings all of it. He just brings it to God. Then he declares this truth about who God is and about what God's going to do. And then he trusts God with the outcome. He trusts God for what's going to happen next. He says, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why you haven't answered me. But I will trust in your steadfast love. I will trust in your unfailing love love. I will trust in your salvation. In those moments, his heart is turned back towards God, and he says, I trust you. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. I know what's going on, but I have peace about it. I know what's going on, but I have hope. I don't know what's going on, but I have joy because I trust you for the outcome. Now, I absolutely love the way this plays out in Psalm 12. Because you see David do this. You see David declare his trust in God with the outcome. And then we come back to verse 8. And in verse 8, after he's declared his trust in God, David says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. See, David's trusting God with the outcome, even though... It hasn't happened yet, even though he's not satisfied yet, even though the circumstance hasn't changed yet, even though nothing has changed except for David's heart. Nothing has changed. David's still praising him, trusting God, believing him for the outcome, even though this thing still hasn't changed. And isn't that the way it is for us so often? We cry out to God. We long for God's goodness, we long for God's blessing, we long for the miracle we ask for and then it doesn't change. And what this teaches us is that we can still trust God for the outcome, even if it didn't change in that second, even if it hasn't changed yet, we can still trust God with the outcome. And this is what David does, and we see it over and over and over again, where David follows this pattern of, God, I'm just going to be real with you, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to be vulnerable, here's my heart, here's what's going on with me. I know this is true about you. I know this promise uh, that you made. I know who you are. And so because of that, I'm going to trust you, even though this hasn't changed yet, even though this is still bad, even though this isn't whatever I thought it was going to be, I'm going to trust you. And what we find is David finds peace in that process. He finds peace in that. And I will tell you, the hardest part of this is that first step, being real with God. It is such, it's so somehow ingrained in us that we have to pray a certain way, that we have to come to God in a certain stat- standard, or, or somehow we have to get it like fixed, we have to get it taken care of, right? And, and I can tell you there have been times in my life when, when I've, I've had an argument with somebody, uh, somebody close to me, maybe my wife, maybe a boss, maybe a coworker. but I've had an argument, and before I can take that to God, to, before I can take that problem to God, I feel like I have to go work it out. Like somehow I have to get this resolved so I can come back into the presence of God and talk to God. And, and, and let me tell you, this just doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous to think that somehow I I could get my life good enough, I could get my situation in a good enough place that now I get to come to God. In fact, it's completely contrary to what the scripture tells us, that we're not good enough to come to God, that we can't come into his presence on our own, that we can't approach him, that we can't be good enough, we can't do it by ourselves, that we just can't, we can't, which is why God sent Jesus. We couldn't live good enough. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't be righteous enough. And so God sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we could not live and to take our place on the cross, making a way for us to come to him. God doesn't need you to get your stuff figured out. He just wants you to come to him. He's a father. He's calling you to draw close to come near, to be in his presence. And listen, I know all the reasons why you can't. You don't have time. I know. In our culture, finding time is, uh, is difficult. It's, it's hard to carve out time. There are so many things that are vying for our attention, so many things that are asking for us to focus on them, so many things that want us. Some of them are good things. Guys, I have four kids Right? They need my attention. I have a wonderful, amazing wife who needs my attention, who needs my focus. I have a job that needs my attention and that needs my focus. All of those things are good things that, that are asking for my attention, that are asking for my time. I really need to go to the gym. Just saying. It demands my time. And yet, I would say that you cannot afford to not spend time in prayer with God. Imagine it this way. Most of us have, have lots of bills. We have lots of things we have to pay for. We have a, a rent or a mortgage. We have uh, car payments, some of us. We have insurance payments. There's all kinds of, of bills that come to my house um, every single week, things that I have to pay. And one of the things uh, that always gets paid for sure is my mortgage because I have to have a place to live. Like That's a priority. We can eat really cheap food, but we have to have a place to live. And what I would say to you is this, you have to pray the same way you have to pay your mortgage. Now let me explain that. The reason I say that is this, because you have to have a place to live and the place that you are living is either on the street on your own or in the house of the Lord under his protection, under his covering, in his kingdom. And the only way to live there is to spend time with him in prayer. You can't afford not to. And the benefits is incredible. This happened to me this week. I was... Preparing for this message and Thursday I was reading these psalms and reading these texts. And as God so often does to me, he, he won't let me just come up here and tell you something um, that I'm not doing or haven't done. Um, he, he makes me walk through it um, with you, <laughs> ahead of you sometimes. And this week... He called me. He, he brought to my attention some things as I read this passage that I've been holding back. Things that I've said, I can't take this to God. I'm not ready to talk to God about this yet. Some, some frustration in some areas. Some disappointment. Some hurt. And so I began to uh, that Thursday afternoon, I, I closed my computer and set it aside and I, I sat down on my chair and I just began to commune with God. To just be in His presence. And for the next couple of hours, I just sat there And kind of unloaded in some ways. And said, God, I'm so grateful for these things in my life. I'm so grateful for the way that you did this. I'm so happy for for the blessing that you did in this person's life. I'm so overwhelmed by these things. But at the same time, God, I don't understand why this battle isn't over yet. I don't understand why we're still fighting this thing over here. I don't understand why this. God, I'm so angry about this thing. And I just let him have all of my heart, everything that was there. I didn't try to hold it back at all. I just laid it before him and said, God, here's my heart heart. All of it. And he didn't run away from me. He didn't push me aside like a good father. He drew near and said, I know. I know. I know that you thought that battle was going to be over by now. I know you thought the healing would have already come. I know you thought I was going to take care of that this way. I know you thought those things. I know you're hurting, but don't forget. Don't forget. I'm still good. I'm still your father. I'm still close. And guys, I will tell you in that moment of just being embraced by my father, of hearing him say, I still got you. I'm still with you. I haven't abandoned you. It's okay that you're upset. It's okay that you're angry. It's okay that you're frustrated. I'm still God. In that moment, something happened in my heart. And for the next 24 hours, I literally could not stop singing praises to God constantly because my heart had been turned by the presence of of God, by my vulnerability, by my authenticity, by giving him all of my heart, he was able to turn it and bring me into a place of peace and joy and hope. And so this morning, I don't know what's holding you back. Maybe you think that you've you've done too much wrong. Maybe you think that God doesn't care about this thing. Maybe you think God, God really isn't interested in my problem. God really doesn't care. This thing is too insignificant for God. I'm telling you, it's not. Wherever you are this morning, whatever's going on with you this morning, I just wanna give you an opportunity right now to be real with him, to be honest with him, to come into the throne room, to come into his presence, to come to the altar and say, God, here's where I'm at. Will you still meet with me? And I guarantee you, if you're willing to say, God, here's where I'm at. Will you still meet with me? He will show up every single time.